Story 21 of Stories Weird and Wonderful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sam Munson. Stories Weird and Wonderful by J.E. Muddock. Story 21. The Crime of the Rue Aubert. Enthusiasts have spoken of Paris as one of the most beautiful cities in the world. The Parisians themselves go farther than this and say it is the most beautiful city. The Parisians may be forgiven for their pride, for if we confine ourselves to the Paris of the boulevards, it is beautiful. But there is another Paris which the ordinary traveler does not see. It is a Paris of hideousness, of squalor, of all that is hateful and revolting in human nature. This gay capital, in fact, is a city of the most extraordinary and striking contrasts. And there is another aspect, too, which the observant writer cannot overlook. It is the city of original crimes. It has been reserved for Paris to exhibit human nature in such hideous and cruel forms that one shudders and bows his head in shame and sorrow as he thinks of it. Of course, other cities have their plague spots and human fiends, but it is to Paris the world looks for novelty in the way of crime. But perhaps one of the most mysterious and novel crimes that even Paris has placed upon the records is that which has come to be known as the crime of the Rue Aubert. The Rue Aubert, let it be understood, is not one of the slums of the city. It is not situated in the plague spots of Clichy and St. Owen. It has no connection with the notorious west of the Grand Opera and forming part of a line of connection between the Boulevard des Italiens and the magnificent Boulevard Haussmann, which runs north. The houses in the Rue Aubert are marked by a monotonous regularity of architecture. They are all large apartment houses and rise to a height of five stories, each story or flat representing two households. At number 13 in this street, according to superstitious people, 13 is always an unlucky number, and on the third etage or flat lived Monsieur Henri Didet and his wife, together with one servant, Eugenia Souchard, a woman of about 50 years of age. Didet was a young man, a little over 30, and he was remarkable for his handsome appearance. He was the average height for a Frenchman, with a grace of carriage and perfection of figure. He had a mass of dark hair that fell over his white forehead in a wealth of tiny ringlets. His face was clean-shaven, except for his dainty moustache, which he always scrupulously trimmed. His peculiarly mobile face seemed capable of almost any change, and his eyes, which were dark and piercing, appeared to possess the faculty of looking right through you. In disposition he was insincere, incapable of anything like serious thought, and he abandoned himself to the whirl and gaiety of Parisian life. It might be said that he passed his time in planning pleasure for the morrow and in thoroughly enjoying himself the day before. He was a Parisian of Parisians, and life for him had no higher meaning than to live, and his interpretation of to live was gaiety of every possible kind, an hourly and daily ministration to the carnal pleasures. He had for some time been in business as a chemist, though his want of seriousness prevented him from succeeding. That, however, did not matter. His handsome person won him a lady who brought him a large dot, and just after his marriage an aunt died and left him a small fortune, so he sold the chemist's business and retired to lead the only kind of existence that charmed him. Madame Didet was a petite woman, not bad-looking, but somewhat insipid. She was fair with blue eyes and rather wanting in expression. She was delicate, with a fragile form, and a dreamy eye and a general languid appearance. Although she did not suffer from any actual illness, she was subject to attacks of hysteria. She was devoted to her husband, but exceedingly jealous of him, not, however, without good cause. He seemed to possess remarkable influence over her, 
an influence due to a certain magnetic power he exercised, and by which he was enabled to bend her to his will in almost every conceivable way. It is necessary to say that Eugenia Souchard, their servant, was rather a stupid kind of woman, but she had been with Didet long before he was married, and she was much attached to her master and mistress. When the Didets first went to live at 13 Rue Aubert, the other half of the flat upon which they had their residence was not occupied. It had been without tenant for some months, as people complained that the rent was too high. But soon after the Didets went there, the other half of the flat was taken by a Monsieur Chocot, who had been an officer in the army, but had been compelled to retire owing to a wound he received, which unfitted him for military service. He was married, and between him and his wife was considerable disparity of age. He was about fifty, while she was not more than thirty, and was remarkably handsome. He was a reserved man, somewhat retiring in disposition, while she was volatile and fond of gaiety. Between these two families, being close neighbors as they were, an intimacy soon sprang up. But it was not long before it became evident to Madame Didet that her husband was paying more attention to the pretty Madame Charcot than was consistent with mere neighborly feeling. This led to some unpleasantness between Didet and his wife, but he assured her, vowed solemnly in fact, that is, as solemnly as such a man could vow, that she was mistaken. She was satisfied, and things went on harmoniously again for some time. But during this time Didet was falling desperately in love with his pretty neighbor, and she did not seem to object. One day a picnic had been arranged between the two families, and Charcot and Didet, accompanied by their wives and another lady and gentleman, went out for the day. It was summertime, and they took the train to Saint-Germain. This is a favorite resort of the Parisians in summer. It is a charming spot, a little paradise. There is a magnificent forest, many miles in extent, with romantic glades and entrancing walks, and there is a celebrated hotel, the Hotel de Louis Quatorze. It stands in extensive grounds on a terrace that commands a magnificent panorama of the Valley of the Seine, with the tortuous river threading its way with many folds and twists, like a silver serpent. Here in the grounds of this hotel are numerous bowers under trees, and it is delightful to sit there on a summer day, the air languid with the scent of flowers and musical with birdsong, and partake of the exquisite dinner for which the hotel is famed. The little party enjoyed themselves, with all the abandon peculiar to the Parisian when out for the day. A recherche dinner was taken part of, and several bottles of choice wine were discussed, and over the cigars and coffee there was much laughter and joking. The French people are a light-hearted people. They live in the today. The tomorrow is but a dream, a vague shadow to them. Madame Didet was particularly vivacious. The wine had heightened her color and brightened her eyes, and as she toyed with a dainty cigarette, her laughter was silvery and light, as though she had not a care in the whole world. The day was deepening to its close. Already the purple shadows were creeping along the valley, and the river was growing tawny in the fading light. Beneath a group of trees at the end of the terrace in the hotel garden, a man and woman stood, all but hidden by the darkness caused by the trees. The man was Didet, the woman... Madame Charcot. They had stolen away from the others, she first, he following some time after. He held her hand, though she was trying to disengage it, and into her ear he was whispering in impassioned language these words. Agathe, he called her by her Christian name. Agathe, why did fate not bring us together two years ago? Ah, she sighed. Agathe, he cried, growing more excited as her sigh told him that his words found an echo in her own breast. Agathe, je t'aime. She started at this declaration, and in accents that told of her distress, she said, No, no, Monsieur Didet, you must not talk to me like that. Remember my husband. Mon Dieu, hissed Didet fiercely under his breath. 
I always remember him. Which devil was it that gave you a husband and me a wife before you and I met? Hush, hush, she said appealingly. We must be satisfied with our lot. We, we must not talk of love. Agathe, he murmured in stricken tones, have you no love for me? She averted her face from him and whispered, I might have had. You might have had? Yes. But why have you not now? Because I am already a wife, she sighed. He threw his arms round her and drew her to his breast, but at that moment a man sprang forward, and seizing her arm, he twisted her around, almost flinging her to the ground, and then with blazing eyes and a white face he confronted Didet. The newcomer was Charcot, and in a voice hoarse with passion he exclaimed, I suspected this. You are a snake, and your very breath is poison. But beware how you tamper with my wife, lest I am tempted to kill her and you. Didet had nothing to say. He did attempt to stammer forth something in the nature of an excuse, but he knew his guilt, and the words stuck in his throat. It was hardly possible that this scene could be kept from Madame Didet. She saw by her husband's face that something had happened, and guessed what that something was. And when Charcot took his wife away and went back to Paris without the rest of the party, she knew that her guess was right. Then ensued a pitiable scene. She went into violent hysterics and rent the air with her screams, and so unmanageable did she become, and so excited, that her husband decided not to return to Paris that night, but to remain with her at the hotel. All night long she raved, but towards the morning sank to sleep, waking up three hours later prostrated and ill. Her husband went on his knees before her, and vowed that he was deeply repentant, and would never sin in the same way again. She sealed her forgiveness with kisses, and in the afternoon they returned to Paris perfectly reconciled. And when he returned home, he sought out Monsieur Charcot, and craved his pardon too, and so earnest did he seem, so humble was he, he shed so many tears and made so many protestations, that Charcot, who was not a vindictive man, was moved, and said he would think no more of the matter. Thus the neighborly relations were resumed, although the little episode had undoubtedly left some frigidity behind it. If the serpent had not been in the Garden of Eden, Eve would not have fallen, and had Charcot taken his wife away, Didet might not have been tempted. But for weeks and months after that affair at St. Germain, he saw her in seeing side, and possibly, nay, probably, something in her face, some look in her eyes, answered him. It was a winter night. Snow was falling over Paris, but nevertheless Monsieur Charcot and his wife had gone to the theater and taken Madame Didet with them. Didet himself would not go. He pleaded a splitting headache in general malaise. His wife wished to remain and nurse him, but he would not hear of it. He said that he desired to be alone, to be perfectly quiet for a few hours, and insisted on her going. An hour later he gave his servant a couple of francs, telling her that she could invite Charcot's servant to a petit souper at a neighboring café, and when they had gone he sprang from the couch on which he had been reclining with a towel round his head. He dashed the towel to the ground. His malaise seemed to have flown. He went on to the landing and listened. No one was coming up the stairs, or down from the other flats. All was silent as death, save for a gas jet on the next landing that hissed like an angry snake in the cold blasts of air that rushed up the stairway. Didet took a latchkey from his pocket, and noiselessly opened Charcot's door. Then, with a pair of pincers and a screwdriver, he so altered the position of the check that held the latch when it was let down was to make it useless. The consequence of this was that anyone letting the latch down would not be aware that the check was damaged, and, of course, would imagine the door was fastened, whereas it could still be opened with a latch key from the outside. Today's object in doing this we shall presently see. 
His work completed, he went back to his own house and smoked heavily and drank some cognac. But at one o'clock, when his wife returned, he was asleep on the couch. She was tender and loving to him and told him all about the play and how she and the Charcots had supped at a cafe, partaking of oysters and bouillon and cotolettes a la tomates and pudding au riz of vexos a la rhum, followed by gruyere and some petites fruits. And for wine there had been a bottle of grave and a bottle and a half of Chateau Margaux for Monsieur Charcot when he went to the theater liked to sup well, and he was a connoisseur in wines. And then, as a finale, there had been Café Noir and a Petit Verre. Ah, mon mari, she exclaimed, as she threw her arms round his neck. The supper was splendid, but mon cher, mon prince, I was so lonely without thee. He laughed and kissed her, but it was a Judas kiss. So Judas kissed his master. Then they went to bed, and through the snowy air the bells of Paris were booming too. Silence. Through the snowy air the bells of Paris were booming three. Monsieur Didet rose from his bed and arrayed himself in a thick woolen dressing gown. A shaded lamp was burning low but gave sufficient light to render objects in the room visible. He bent over his wife. She was sleeping soundly. The petite soupère had not disagreed with her. He passed his hand over her head, first from back to front and then from side to side. She moved. She half turned. She sighed deeply. But he made other passes, and she became passive. Presently he stood erect and waved his hand up and down slowly. Then she rose. Her eyes were open but fixed. Her face was pale. Her lips moved as if in speech, but no sounds issued. Get up, said her husband softly. She slipped from the bed with no apparent effort and stood before him motionless, her white robe de nuit falling about her like the drapery of a statue. He opened a drawer in the dressing table and took out something. It was a weapon. He threw off a leather case and revealed a long, sharp, and glittering stiletto. He grasped her hand and then bent her white fingers round the handle of the deadly weapon. He next placed a small file with a glass stopper in her other hand. That done, he whispered something in her ear, and she began to move towards the door. Through the snowy air the bells of Paris were booming half-past three. He preceded her opened the door and she passed out. A little shudder seemed to shake her as her bare feet came in contact with the cold stones. He crept across the landing and with the latch key opened Charcot's door. Then waving his hand he motioned her to enter. A dim light burned in the passage and Madame Didet looked like a ghost. All was silent in Charcot's house. The woman moved without a sound, going first now. Didet crept after her on tiptoe. She reached Monsieur Charcot's bedroom. A lamp burned low there also. Charcot slept soundly in one bed, his wife in another. Madame Didet bent over Charcot for a moment or two, then raised her arm high and plunged the long stiletto into his breast. The blood spurted from the wound and encrimsoned Madame Didet's nightdress. The petite soupère had caused Madame Charcot to sleep soundly, and she was all unconscious of what was going on. Again, Didet waved his hand and his wife drew the stopper from the bottle she held. Then she placed the mouth of the phial to her lips. It was filled with a white colorless fluid, and she poured this fluid down her throat. That act completed, Didet slipped away, leaving Charcot's door open, and his own open, but in his excitement he saw not a figure that cowered against the wall in the passage. He gained his room and threw himself on his bed. Through the snowy air the bells of Paris boomed four. Didet rolled himself in the blankets and fell asleep. It is astonishing how some men can sleep under every and any circumstances.
through the air, it had ceased to snow. The bells of Paris boomed seven. A little later, the laitier, milkman, came up the stairs with the morning milk. On reaching the Didet-Charcot landing, he was surprised to find the doors of both houses open. It was so unusual for them to be open at that time of the morning. He stood at Charcot's door and called the servant, who had only just got out of bed. She could not account for the doors being opened. Moreover, in her master's door was a latch-key. What did this mean? In alarm, she went to her master's room, and soon she uttered a cry of terror, for she saw a woman lying on the floor and thought it was her mistress. The laitier went in and turned up the lamp. Then it was seen that Madame Charcot was in bed and awake. The cry had awakened her, while the nightdress of the woman on the floor was stained with blood. The man drew the curtains of Charcot's bed, then staggered back appalled, for the clothes were all red with blood. A long dagger was sticking in Charcot's breast, and he was dead. With a scream of awful fear, Madame Charcot now sprang up. She recognized the woman on the floor as Madame Didet. She was dead and in her cold, marble-like hands she tightly grasped a file. The milkman rushed over to the Didet's house. Eugenia Souchard was already at the door. She looked like a corpse, so ghastly white was she. "'Mon Dieu, it's awful, awful,' groaned the man. "'Where's Monsieur?' "'Sleeping soundly in his bed,' answered Eugenia with considerable firmness. "'There has been murder,' said the Latier. "'Mon Dieu, it's awful, awful!' Then he clattered down the stairs to spread the alarm. In wild terror, Madame Charcot rushed into Didet's house and threw herself onto the floor. He came to her and tried to soothe her. Presently the gendarmes arrived, and over the neighborhood flew the news, and crowds collected, and the most wild and wonderful rumors were circulated. The tragedy was surrounded with mystery, but so far as the investigation of the police went, they were enabled to report that Madame Didet seemed to have stolen from her husband's bedroom to have entered Charcot's house by means of a duplicate key, had then stabbed him to the heart, and had poisoned herself at his bedside. The motive? Well, it could only be guessed at, but no doubt there had been some guilty liaison between the pair. Possibly, so it was suggested, he wanted to throw her off, and she had resolved to kill him and herself. It was by no means an unfamiliar story in Paris. So in a few days the gay Parisians shrugged their shoulders and said, these things will happen. How sorry we are for poor Madame Charcot and poor Monsieur Didet. Mon Dieu, it is terrible. And so, with this sympathy, they dismissed the subject and went on with their gaiety again. In a few weeks, Monsieur Didet gave up his house in the Rue Aubert, for he said he could not live in it. The associations were too terrible. The Verve Charcot also changed her residence and went to live in the same neighborhood, in fact, in the next block of buildings. Four months later, Monsieur Didet announced that he was going to marry the pretty Verve Charcot. Then his servant, Eugenia Souchard, whom he had retained, said, No, Monsieur, you will not marry that woman. Didet thought that his poor servant girl had gone a little cracked and laughed heartily, but with terrible emphasis, Eugenia repeated, No, Monsieur, you will not marry that woman. Why? asked her master, growing serious. Because I forbid it. You? Yes. Didet was ashen now. Something in Eugenia's manner caused his blood to chill. What do you mean? he gasped. I mean what I say. I have held my peace all too long. I loved my mistress, and I have loved you, but I will not see this last outrage committed. You are mad, he said, as his courage came back, for he mistook her words. 
Madame Verve Charcot and I will assuredly become man and wife. No, said the woman sternly, for I'll denounce you first. Once more Didet's face assumed an ashen hue. On that fearful night I saw all, she added. I had supped with the Charcot's servant. I had drunk some bad wine and it gave me cramps so that I could not sleep. I heard you open the door and was alarmed. Coming to see what was the matter, I saw you and Madame go out. She was in her nightdress and asleep. You had mesmerized her. I followed you like a shadow and saw Madame plunge the knife into Monsieur Charcot's body. Then I fled in horror. Didet was almost paralyzed with surprise and fear. He thought that no human eye had witnessed the deed and that no human soul had even deemed it possible that he had done this dreadful thing. Here was a revelation. He had committed a fearful crime in order to gain the woman to whom he had given his guilty love. When he had somewhat recovered himself, his first impulse was to kill the sole witness of his guilt, and he endeavored to seize her, but she escaped and ran screaming into the street. He knew then that he was a doomed man, and in the madness of despair and fear he shot himself. And thus Nemesis revenged the dark crime of the Rue Aubert, and the gay Parisians, when they heard of the sequel to the Rue Aubert crime, shrugged their shoulders and talked of it for an hour or two. Then they said, Ah, these things will happen. And so they went on with their gaiety again. End of Story 21 The Crime of Rue Aubert Recording by Sam Munson, 